You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Let us pray. Almighty God, Father of all mercies, we, thine unworthy servants, do give thee most humble and hearty thanks for all thy goodness and loving kindness to us and to all men. We bless thee for our creation, preservation, and all the blessings of this life, but above all for thine inestimable love and the redemption of the world by our Lord Jesus Christ, for the means of grace and for the hope of glory. And we beseech thee, give us that due sense of all thy mercies, that our hearts may be unfeignedly thankful, and that we show forth thy praise, not only with our lips, but in our lives, by giving up ourselves to thy service, and by walking before thee in holiness and righteousness all our days. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, to whom with thee and the Holy Spirit be all honor and glory, world without end. Amen. O Holy Spirit. We pray that you would continue to grant us thankful hearts, that we may see our need for Jesus, and that you might give him to us. Amen. So as I do, I want to give just brief history about this unique prayer, and then I want to give a big concept of of just the general idea of thankfulness and how it plays into this prayer, and then dive into some of the specific phrases. By way of causing us to hear God's word more clearly about these concepts, um, but also by way of maybe, just maybe, that God would use this class and this opportunity to give us his spirit and grant us, by his mercy, more thankful hearts. Uh, so first, and, and just so you know, I mean, I, you all by now, if you've heard me teach on this kind of stuff, you know I love Thomas Cranmer, but I just want to say this prayer was not written by Thomas Cranmer. <laughs> and here it is that I'm, I'm raising it up as a wonderful prayer. So uh, the man was not perfect, neither am I. And there are wonderful things in the prayer book besides what he gave to it. And this is a testament to the beauty of the way God's worked through the church in blessing and refining. Cranmer's uh, work in the initial prayer books of 1549 and 1552, because this one didn't appear on the scene until 1662. Here's, uh, I don't know, it's, it's probably a little more substantiated than kind of like historical folklore, uh, but what is surmised by some liturgical historians is that this prayer was based on something that Queen Elizabeth prayed privately and then became public sometime in the late 16th century, and then became something like of an underground prayer that the ministers, the bishops would pray, or maybe above ground prayer. And it was seen as something so fitting that a bishop at the time that the 1662 prayer book was being written, the Bishop of Norwich, his name was Edward Reynolds. Um, He was Bishop of Norwich from about 1661, so right before that prayer book hit. Uh, And then in the 1670s. This bishop, it sounds like he took this prayer of Elizabeth's and crafted it a little bit more, gave it to the committee that was producing the prayer book. They liked it well enough that probably through their own refining and through committee work, this prayer appears for the first time in the Book of Common Prayer. Interestingly, this prayer was an option of a variety of prayers and colics that you could choose from in the 1662 morning prayer. 
So that means if you opened up morning prayer in 1662, you wouldn't find it in the liturgy proper, except among several options for you to choose from. And it was actually the Americans, praise God, the Americans who um, first ratified the 1789. I remember that year because it's 1789. The 1789, the first American prayer book. It was that group that said, this is such a great prayer that we need to lift it out of options and put it in the permanent place of morning prayer at the very end of it. So it kind of got elevated through history as people prayed it and said, this is a really good prayer. This summarizes a lot. It's great. Uh, so only as American prayer book Christians do we find this prayer being a part of uh, the common liturgy every week. Otherwise, you could just choose from it uh, among other options. So part of the unique heritage of Americans giving to the global refining of the prayer books is this prayer, the great thanksgiving, the general thanksgiving, not the great thanksgiving. Different names, different times. Uh, I want to point out to you, kind of as a global, that this is for morning prayer, right? So in morning prayer, we don't celebrate communion. Interestingly enough, though, a prayer like this has a lot of similarities to the prayer that falls at the end of the service uh, for communion. Have you ever noticed that? Mm-hmm. That the post-communion prayer, which we'll go over next week, has a lot of these same kinds of themes. And sometimes, if you have them kind of memorized... You slip into one or the other. I don't know if you've ever noticed that, but I'm like, oh, I'm on the wrong one, right? If I'm just going from my mind. And part of that, I think, is there's a there's a, a truth to the fact that even in morning prayer, you could say that uh, a service without communion still has Eucharistic overtones. And what I mean by that is the word we use for communion uh, in, in church tradition sometimes is not only Holy Communion, not only the table, but this word Eucharist. And it comes from a biblical word, a Greek word, Eucharistia, which means thanksgiving, right? Um, and one of the things that modern, uh, the, the modern revisers of the prayer book, and I agree, I appreciate this about what they did, is they wanted to allow communion not only to feel like some sort of dirgeful funeral, you know, but they wanted it to feel like a great thanksgiving. They looked back in church history and found that this was a really historic way that people uh, celebrated was not only with a, a remembrance of Christ's death and all the somber, dark realities of that, but also a Thanksgiving, a, a, a time where we're eating a bit kind of like American Thanksgiving, a foretaste of a huge meal that's for us in Christ at the end of days, the hope of glory, what's to come, you know? Uh, and so I appreciate those overtones even here that it reminds us in a service without Holy Communion about the fact that we're to be giving thanks at all times. And as we end this morning prayer service, and as we'll see, it's connected to earlier in the service, um, we give thanks, right? The other thing I wanted to point out was simply this. It's from Philippians 4.6. And maybe this is a word for you if you're in a season of anxiety, like I have been about the sound system in the last few weeks. Um, but even more than that, you know, my wife can testify that this goes way too deep into my psyche because I find myself unable to sleep over something as dumb as a sound system. All right. But if you found yourself in an anxious place for something less dumb uh, and just life is, is hitting you, this word from Paul sums up what this prayer is all about from Philippians And I'm going to begin in verse 4, but it's really verse 6 that we're hitting. Paul says to the Philippians, you've probably heard this before, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, because you guys tend not to rejoice very well and tend to dwell on the negative, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious 
about anything. So look at this contrast. Do not be anxious about anything. As if a command could really help you be less anxious. But anyway, Mm -hmm. do not be anxious about anything. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. It's this with thanksgiving bit that I, I think of as Paul's contrast. The anxious life here is contrasted with the thankful life. It is as though they kind of sit on, on balances. And when, uh, when thankfulness r- rises to the top or pushes down with weightiness, anxiety has less of a weight in our life. I don't know about you, but the times in life where I've been most thankful have been times where it's not like all the circumstances have been solved but my heart is in the right place to receive all the difficulty, such that the anxiety tends to lift, all right? And I think there's something to this, that uh, thankfulness and the life of thanksgiving is a life that is inoculated against anxiety, against those things. And I I tend to, in my moments of anxiety, not feel very thankful and not remember all the blessings in the words of, the 17th century divines, all the benefits of Christ, all those things I tend to let fade to some third level of consciousness as whatever's before me, plaguing me, worrying me is at the top end. And God would have us see that the Christian life is first and foremost, not an active life of doing for God, but because the Christian life is principally about what we have received from the Lord, the Christian life is ultimately the thankful life right? Thanksgiving, is it's simply saying, thanks. Look at what all you give me, O Lord. That's the Christian life right there in a nutshell. And it's out of that disposition of thankfulness that flows, as we'll see by the end of this class, all good works, all good things that we do. So this first line, Almighty God, Father of all mercies. I was dwelling on this because of something insightful that Fran said to me last week as we were walking out of class that I didn't note about the... Uh, about the, the prayer of confession from morning prayer. It has the same kind of thing, right? It says, uh, Almighty God, Almighty and most merciful Father. Have you ever thought about how those are actually trying to play at two different qualities of God that often yield two different results when it hits us? Almighty God, Father of all mercies. Have you ever thought about the fact that it's only with both of them held together? that we recognize the grandeur of each of them? For instance, I mean, just think about the fact that Almighty God sees everything, sees everything, knows everything, is fully powerful, fully capable of whatever He wills. That's, a, that's I don't know about you, but as a human being, normal life, that's scary. <laughs> that's freaky, okay? I don't want Big Brother looking at my every move. I don't want a camera around me at all time. I don't I want the kind of power and autonomy that I'm in control of things. And when we say almighty God, we are already positioning ourselves in a certain way before this God that we serve, right? And that can be a scary, decimating, devastating thing unless he also reveals himself as what? The father of all mercies. You see, he's a God that looks on us in our totality. And yet, not only is he a most merciful God, but he's the father of all mercy. He's the author. Everything merciful coming your direction somehow traces back to his merciful, providential hand. It's like that passage in James 1 that says, every good and perfect gift 
comes down from the Father of lights. That means whether you recognize it as from the Lord or not, as you go about your day, I would encourage you, Christian, to recognize that Christ plays in 10,000 places and that this is my Father's world. That means anything good that happens to you, you don't need to doubt, was that, was that from God? Or was that just sort of life chance happenstance type stuff? No, Christian, every good and perfect gift, when it hits you, it was from God's foreordination, from God's plan to give that to you as a personal gift, a personal I love you. And if we really operated like that in a day-to-day basis, how much more could we say, God speaks to me everywhere? Just like uh, the hymn says, and this is my father's world, in the rustling grass, I hear him pass. He speaks to me everywhere. This is my father's world. And so we have a merciful God who is contrasted with his almightiness, his might and his nature. We, thine unworthy servants, do give thee most humble and hearty thanks. That word hearty, it's old English word, right? When do we, how do we use the word hearty? Usually for soup in a can, right? <laughs> right? It's usually written on the little label there. Mm, it's hearty, right? Or food or something like that. Or maybe I, or what? My appetite, right. I have a hearty appetite, right? We've lost the sense of actually the more obvious meaning of the word hearty, which is what? Of the heart, from the heart. So it's not that we're going, ah, my thanks is great or something like that, right? We're actually saying we give you humble, but just heartfelt from the full heart. I give you humble and hearty thanks, all right? Anytime you hear that word, which it's all over the prayer book and it's intentional because uh, one of the things that was felt at the time that the prayer book was coming out was that this stuff is heartless. You know, you can go through the liturgy in such a rote manner that it's all words and no heart. You honor me with your lips, you know, but your hearts are far from me. That was the accusation at the time of the Reformation of what the state of the church was. They said, we want a heartfelt appropriation of the gospel. We want to be able to hear this to our heart and then speak to God as a response from our heart. So if you find yourself in a place where you're just uh, a sort of robotic Anglican, a robotic Episcopalian on a week-to-week basis, my encouragement to you is that that was never the intention of liturgical worship, to be lacking in heart and zeal. But instead, it was supposed to be filled with joy and passion. Dare I say tears? Dare I say a, a kind of charismatic experience, as scary as that word might seem? that the liturgy might come that alive to us and that these prayers might not only be something on our lips, but something that's just flowing out of the the thankfulness of our heart, right? So we give thee most humble and heartfelt, hearty thanks for all thy goodness and loving kindness. Now look up, look up. When you hear the words goodness and loving kindness or goodness and mercy, does it echo any part of scripture for you? Tell me about that. That wasn't the one I was thinking of, but I, now I'm intrigued. Um, it's a part of God's nature of who He is. Mm-hmm. His goodness. Yeah. Yes. About who He is. Yes. Right. Yes. That's all over Exodus. That's right. There's a particular famous passage of Scripture that has this couplet, surely goodness and mercy, surely goodness and loving kindness. They have trouble translating that second word because it's so rich in Hebrew. Psalm 23, right? Psalm 23, Surely goodness and loving kindness shall follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Um, This is interesting to me. I think through teaching this class and talking about morning prayer these last few weeks, 
my ears are perking up to all the ways that God as good shepherd is pressing through the morning prayer liturgy. You know, he's leading his sheep. Almighty and most merciful Father, we have erred and strayed from thy ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. So right at the beginning of morning prayer, God is setting himself up as shepherd. And we're orienting ourselves as dumb, wandering sheep, all right? And then here and in other places, we have this shepherd motif of God walking us through the liturgy, speaking good words to us. For all thy goodness and mercy, all thy goodness and loving kindness. And then there's this. I don't know if you pass by this as quickly as I do on a regular basis, but to us and to all men, right? As the scriptures say, the rain falls on the just and the unjust. And what does it mean poetically when it's saying the rain falls on the just and the unjust? It means that there's a certain aspect of God's benevolence that irrespective of whether people are sinners orienting themselves toward him in repentance or sinners rebelling against him with a, with a, a closed fist, that God is still gracious enough that he will bestow certain blessings on all of humanity. And so as a church, we're kind of coming on behalf of all humanity, the humanity that doesn't want to give thanks, that may be giving thanks to another God or another idol that God's looking at going, you're ridiculous. You know, the church comes in and says, we give you thanks for all your goodness and loving kindness to us and to all people, right? There's a sense in which we're giving this global thanks for the fact that God not only creates, but as we'll see in just a second, he preserves. So let's go to that. We bless thee for our creation preservation and all the blessings of this life now do any of you know sort of the general uh type of theology that many of our american founders held so we're thinking like mid 18th century it's a particular type of ism that some and many of these founders held what was it deism Deism, right what is deism that's right God is a divine clockmaker of the world, made the clock known as the world. He wound it up, then he just, see what they do, right? That's deism. That's not a biblical view of who God is. Because when we read uh, in the scriptures who God is, he didn't just let it go. He is intimately involved. In fact, so intimately that he would deign to take on flesh. And that's how intimately he's involved. So that word preservation is pretty significant in it, combating any notion that we're worshiping a deistic type figure here. We're worshiping a God who not only created as if that wasn't a blessing enough, that he would just out of the overflow of his love, create creatures just so he could display his love to them. I mean, how loving is the Trinity that God is just full up with love? creates the world simply to say, I want to create creatures just so they can bask in the glory of how magnificent my love is, our love is, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? And so he does that. But not only does he do that, he preserves creation. I mean, if you want to, uh, certainly we can look at science and see all the things that are so finely tuned about the way the earth spins, about its tilt, about its distance from the sun. Uh, and about all these other forces that are at play in biology and in physics that perfectly hold the earth. And we must understand that these things, the earth doesn't spin off its axis simply because God's holding it there. You know, this is part of God's design that he would do this. And so all these discoveries really are discoveries of God's preservation. If you're a scientist and you're discovering this, 
you need to see God there. He's there in preserving this world. And it was in this time, especially in the 17th century, when this prayer was crafted and honed and was being argued, uh, when the Westminster Confession of Faith was happening in the halls of um, in the halls of, of the divines and the assemblies in Westminster Abbey, uh, there was a, a particular triplet of words often being used to describe God in His totality: He's Creator, He's a Preserver, and He's a Redeemer. And so you see these three things coming up again and again in the nature and the work of God. Creation, preservation, and redemption. And you see them here, right? We bless thee for our creation, preservation, and all the blessings of this life. But above all, you know, this is, uh, this is one of the reasons that probably only in the last two years, whenever we pray as a family around the table, I've started regularly not only giving thanks for the meal, but above all, we want to thank you chiefly for your work, Jesus, of life and death on the cross. I think it's really important. And in many ways, all other thanksgivings find their sum and their totality in Christ's work on the cross. You know, So if we're giving thanks, it should always pinnacle as Christians in the cross because it's out of that that flows everything that we are to be thankful for. And it's out of the, the Word of God, Jesus, that He created the world. But it is that very Word who is crucified so that that world might be redeemed. So it is the true hinge on which history and the world turns. And that's our temporal and uh, imaginative orientation of every last one of us as Christians. My life is oriented around the historical hinge of the cross. We Above all, for thine inestimable love. I can't estimate it. I can't sort of place a value on this love. Inestimable love by the redemption, in the redemption of the world by our Lord Jesus Christ. And then I love these two little lines that make sense in their historical context, but I wonder if they're lost on us a little bit. What are the means of grace? What does that mean? Any conjectures or thoughts? Especially if, uh, I'll just leave it there. We give you thanks for the means of grace. What does that mean? You're just referring to the crucifixion and Yes, yes. There is a sense in which the crucifixion's at the fore. It's still pressing in a little bit further to how the crucifixion comes to us. It's one thing for it to happen, but how are we made aware of it on a regular basis? The Holy Spirit. Through what means? It's even more tangible than that. The Bible. I know, Sunday school answer. That's right. Ding, ding, ding. The Word. That's right. That's one means of grace, especially as these theologians of the 17th century would say, you know, through the Holy Spirit. So these are all like, they're, they're aiming us to the right answer. So the Word of God, what's the other big one that historically the church has understood the scriptures to say, these are special ways that God displays the cross in Christ and the gospel to us on a regular basis? What gifts has he given the church to dispense and receive um, that are these means of grace? Yes, the sacraments, okay? They're not just some like mystical, magical thing. They are means of grace. The word and the sacraments. You'll hear this time and again at this church, but any church that anchors itself, especially in the Reformation, but even beyond that into other history, they'll tell you that God... Um, while he gives his grace in a bunch of ways, he says, the way I'm going to particularly ongoingly make the gospel tangible 
obtainable to your ears and to the ears of your hearts and to your mouth and to your senses. The way I'm going to make this gospel real to you again and again, O forgetful sinner, is by giving you something more than just the fact that Jesus died on a cross 2,000 years ago. I'm going to give it to give that knowledge and that apprehension to you in a way that is easy for you to grasp. And so he's given us means of grace, the word and the sacraments, Bible, preaching, prayer through that word, and then baptism and the Lord's Supper, our means of grace, right? So in this moment, we're giving thanks for the ways that God has made this gospel a little bit easier for us to hear. Do you recognize that? That when you come to the table or when you witness a baptism, that that's God's gracious gift in which he said, I'm going to make my gospel a little more tangible to you. Instead of just something that you sort of perceive in your mind, I'm going to allow the ears of your heart to hear them through your mouth. So I'm going to engage another sense of yours. I'm going to let you smell. It's strange, but people say when you come to the table, you can taste and you smell the gospel in addition to hearing it. And they become ways in which God sort of causes us to perceive Jesus' great word, I died you, I love for you. This is me for you, okay? Always and ever authenticated and beholden to and preached from the word of God, right? So this Bible is a gift to make the gospel clear. And these sacraments under the word are gifts to us as well so that we can hear. And here we're at morning prayer, giving thanks for those. Thank you, God, for making your gospel really obvious to me in ways that I can apprehend it. And then this one. I love this line. And for the hope of glory. Listen to this quotation that is uh, from Colossians 1.27. To them, that's basically to us, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles to the Jews, sorry, to the Jews, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Okay? I don't know about you. Uh, I just had my first major surgery that I've ever had in my life four weeks ago, five weeks ago. And I was, I'll be honest, I was getting a little bummed that I'm getting a little older and my body's falling apart. And I was kind of moping around probably a couple months before, feeling sorry for myself. Of course, not remembering all the people I visited in the hospital with far worse issues than me. But anyway, I was just moping around, just bemoaning the slow decay of my body. Okay. I was a sub-Christian in that moment. I was forgetting the hope of glory in that moment. Because what every last Christian is promised, among many other benefits of Christ's redemption is a new body, is a resurrected body, okay? So on the other side of all this pain and deterioration and this eventual death that apart from the Lord coming back, we will all experience is one aspect of the hope of glory, which is that this is ours promised. It can't be taken away by sin, death, hell, anything else is on the other side of this. First fruits being Jesus is that we're going to get a new glorified body, one that's this body, but totally resurrected, totally made new, where we won't have any more backaches, any more cancer, any more tear-filled experiences of deafness and brokenness inside our brain. You know, all those things go away because of Christ, the first fruits, who leads us into this resurrection of the world and the body. That's part of the hope of glory. The other hope of glory is that all the people who have died, you will see again who are in Christ. 
you will see them again. That's the hope of glory. And then all this veiled way that you and I experience the grace of God, you know, partial and God, here I am sinning again. I seem to have forgotten that you're God. I seem to have forgotten and taken my eyes off the cross again. That glory will be so blinding to us that we won't be able to take our eyes off the cross because the sun won't be what causes us to see on this earth, on the other side of all this, as Revelation says. It'll be the glory of God that will illumine the streets that we walk around and worship forever and ever. Amen. The hope of glory in that little line is everything. I had this one preacher when I was a kid. It was amazing to me because it totally oriented my life in a different direction. He had this super long piece of yarn. We were in some gym or something like that. It was a Christian school chapel service. And he grabbed this piece of yarn and from the back of the gym to the front of the gym, kind of drew that piece of yarn all the way. He said, this is actually a poor representation, but think of this piece of yarn like the the timeline of eternity. And then he got, and he was far away, so he couldn't really see, but he got some scissors and he clipped off one little piece and he said, this is your life before you go to be with Jesus permanently. Look at this compared to that, you know? And he was saying that both as a charge that we need to be, as I'll use a fancy uh, theological word, eschatologically oriented, oriented toward the end, toward what's happening on the other side, because that's what Christians are, is people oriented toward the hope of glory. But he was reminding us that we get so fixated on what happens, this little bit of 75, 80, however many years. The weight of that, the weight of that glory is so minuscule compared to what's on the other side. And that's what that's the Christian orientation of life. The eschatological person oriented toward that end, oriented toward the future that will just go on. It's so hard for minds to grasp. I admit it myself. I'm so obsessed with what's happening right here in this little minuscule existence of mine. And yet God in this little prayer is reminding us that the true Christian Here's the word of God as telling them, there's all of that. And that's actually the truer, more full human life. This is broken. This is messed up. This is going to be twisted and turned and curved in on itself. And we we just wrestle, wrestle in this existence. And that's for that existence. But don't forget, Christian, the hope of glory on the other side of all this. And I hope that every time you pray this prayer, that that hope of glory just rings and maybe you see in your head a big, long piece of yarn. I do think that the rest of the prayer kind of explains itself. The one thing I want to point out is show forth thy praise, not only with our lips, but in our lives. Okay, obvious quotations of scripture. But does anybody, if you've been in morning prayer for a while, is there any time in the morning prayer liturgy when the word lips gets used? Anybody know? Right after confession, what do we say? What do we say? Or what does the minister say and we respond? What did you say? Open thou our lips. Yes, O Lord, open thou our lips. And how do we respond? And our mouths shall show forth thy praise. Comes right after the confession and declaration of forgiveness, right? Because a person who's been killed and made alive, what can they do but stand and have their lips open and sing to the Lord? Okay? So we say, O Lord, open thou our lips and our mouths shall show forth thy praise. So from then on in morning prayer, we're giving God the offering of our lips, right? We're giving God 
uh, all this wonderful stuff. It's kind of ritualized life. But then at the very end of the morning prayer liturgy, we pray, we want to show forth thy praise actually not only with our lips, but in our lives. It's time to let what happened here explode into mission, explode into giving myself to my neighbor. And so I leave you with this quote from Martin Luther. We conclude, therefore, this comes from his treatise, The Freedom of a Christian, landmark bombshell. We conclude, therefore, that a Christian lives not in himself, but in Christ and in his neighbor. Otherwise, he's not a Christian. He lives in Christ through faith, in his neighbor through love. By faith, he is caught up beyond himself into God. By love, he descends beneath himself into his neighbor. Yet he always remains in God and in his love, in Christ. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.